I once heard a story about an aquarium owner. I don't know why, but he put a barracuda in the same tank as a goldfish. Under normal circumstances, a barracuda would devour the goldfish in no time. But this tank didn't have the normal circumstances. There was a clear glass partition separating the goldfish from the barracuda. And like a snake ready to strike, the barracuda would circle around and round and around until he felt the moment was right and then, bam, he would smack that glass just like you would if you tried to walk through a recently cleaned sliding glass door. There was no meal for the barracuda this time. A couple of hours later, he would try again to no avail. And the next day, he would fail again. The aquarium owner got used to the the thud sound of the barracuda hitting the partition. Then, there was a day where the owner heard no sound coming from the tank. He checked and saw that both the goldfish and the barracuda were doing fine. It was as if the barracuda had given up. And so the owner removed the partition. And the barracuda could have success if he just tried one more time. But he never did. What if you were just one more try away from the breakthrough that you've been praying for? One more job application to land your dream career. One more creative idea to be validated and fulfilled. One more invitation to church for the lost family member you lose sleep over. One more prayer to God until all heaven breaks loose in your life. So many times I think we give up when we are not called to give up. We're called to keep going one more time. And you might find out that the barrier that's held you back in the past has been removed. Don't stop. Chapter One, A 10-Year-Old President I grew up beyond rule in a small town of less than 500 people. Most people owned it at least five different kinds of animals. Some of them were friends, but most were food. Gravel was just as common as blacktop, and there were usually at least one truck per family. In the summertime, baseball and the current river were king. Dreams were small, and for the most part, that's what people wanted. I remember feeling different. I dreamed about being the president of the United States. When I was in fourth grade, Al Gore and George Bush, the younger one, were each vying to become the commander-in-chief. Every aspect of something so public was intriguing to me, particularly how two people were able to each get 50% of the nation to believe in them. My family seemed to support Gore, but I was drawn to Bush. He seemed real to me, and I felt like he genuinely cared. My school was staging an election to teach us about the electoral college, campaigns, and voting. They had several students nominated by each class throughout the grades to run for president. The first obstacle was getting the class to choose you. After I got my class to choose me as their presidential candidate, I was able to move on to persuading the entire student body. Each of those who made it through their class primary were set to travel from grade to grade, class to class, and perform a speech that would seal the deal as the next U.S. president. On the day of the actual countrywide election, our student body would conduct their own election. The winner didn't really win anything as it was a learning experience more than anything else. For me, it was a moment to transpose what I had been so intrigued by on TV. In a landslide, I was elected the President of the United States. 
I was ecstatic with the results and could not believe it had been so overwhelming in my favor. After all, it took a very long time to really know who won between Gore and Bush. Inside of a cardboard ballot box constructed by a teacher, I was given all of the votes that had been cast. Several times over the next few years, I would sit in my closet where I stored this big box and perform recounts of my own. Each time I allowed my confidence in my strategy to spur me on to develop even more. Some months later, it was career day, and we got to dress up as our future occupation. Since I was just voted as president, it made sense to dress up as that. I'd been taking the Missouri and U.S. flags on and off the school flagpole every day and learn how to properly fold them. I even formed a team to help and started to delegate responsibilities pertaining to the flags. When it was my time for a picture, our guidance counselor happened to be walking by. I didn't really know her, even what a counselor was. I just thought she was nice. She stopped and read the name tags as each of the kids that displayed their title if their outfit was subtle. When she got to me, she mistakenly said, preacher, as she read it instead of president. I did not correct her because I was embarrassed, but also inspired. The embarrassment came from not feeling good enough, even at that age, to be a preacher. Sensing that maybe I was not too bad to be a preacher, I felt new life. For the first time, I started to dream what that would be like. Every Sunday, the church fan picked me up, and I held pastors in the highest level of respect in my life. To me, their influence was greater than that of the United States president. Unfortunately, all I knew was fire and brimstone. It made me think that preachers were perfect. I also thought they had to be. I took off my president tag and let people guess what I was for the rest of the day. Over the years, I would wrestle with my path. But that moment, during that photo, did something to me. I had taken off the label that I assigned myself. I allowed myself to dream big and without shame. Dream big. To this day, I always ask people what their dream job is. I do this because it can tell a lot about a person. Recently, while I was getting my hair cut, I asked my stylist, Stevie, if this was her dream job. She laughed at me. She laughed a lot. Absolutely not, she said. How was I supposed to know? I pressed, now intrigued, really wanting to know, well, what is it? Her response was, we don't have enough time to get into all of that. I could sense she was not happy with her life or her vocation though she was good at it. How terrible it would feel to live life in a way where we're not doing what we feel like we're supposed to be doing, or even worse, to feel like we don't have a purpose at all. God actually created us with intentionality. We have something, a mission perhaps, to accomplish that we're uniquely designed for. My heart broke for Stevie, and I changed the subject. I also left her a good tip. God's thoughts about you. Sometimes people don't live out their purpose because they're afraid to dream. I can make a compelling pace that it's sinful to not dream big dreams with our lives. I won't, but I'm sure I could. At any count, we need to dream big. Think about your walk with God like this. Out of all of the beautiful places on earth, the waterfalls, beaches, snow-covered mountain, you are his treasured possession. You are the apple of his eye. He's crazy about you. 
Before you were born and while you were in your mother's womb, he breathed life into you and declared you to be fearfully and wonderfully made. The creator, you as his creation, knitted you together. And when you were born and took your first breath, he was the one that ushered in the oxygen into your lungs. The thoughts he has of you, good thoughts, are more numerous than the stars in the sky or the sands in the sea. And all of that, it takes place in your first second of life. How much more he has for you. The plans that he has for you are for a hope and a future, for you to prosper and not harm. Somewhere along the way in this life, we stop dreaming. And without dreaming, we stop living in the vast potential that God has for our life. Ben Franklin said most men die from the neck up by the age of 25 because they stop dreaming. Famous dreamer. Joseph was one of the most famous dreamers in the Bible. He was given a lot of favor from his family, and God revealed something amazing to him in one of his dreams. In this dream, he pictured a scene that placed him in the position of influence ruling a nation. His brothers, who already held a little angst towards him, actually bowed down to him in this dream. Joseph seems like he was a pretty humble guy, but what I love is that he was able to share his dream unashamedly. Of course, his older brothers did not like the idea of them bowing down to him. That didn't sit right with him. Culturally, the little brother is supposed to bow to the older brothers, not the other way around. They were also fed up with the special treatment he received as the golden boy of the family. They decided he deserved to be punished. At first, they thought maybe they would kill him. Luckily, one of the brothers was smart enough to know that this was not the best route. Instead, they dug a big hole, threw Joseph in it, and waited until a caravan of slaves came by. Then they sold him. His brothers sold him into slavery. As a slave, Joseph worked diligently and was given favor. He still believed in the dream that God placed on his heart. He was not going to let something small, huh, like being sold into slavery, stop him. Eventually, he would be placed into influence as the chief slave in the home of Potiphar, a prominent leader at the time. Potiphar's wife was naughty, though. And one time when her king was away, the wife came out to play. She lunged at Joseph, wanting to engage him sexually. Joseph, true to his convictions, declined the invitation, and at the wrong moment, he was caught in an innocent but compromising scene. Not wanting to be seen as guilty, Potiphar's wife accused him of rape, and Joseph was thrown into prison. Once again, while in prison, Joseph was gradually given more influence. He worked his way up to chief prisoner. <laughs> Not a title I would be happy with if I were him. He made friends and shared his dreams there, a move that would eventually bring his original dream to fruition. Pharaoh began to have dreams and tried everything to understand what they meant. After trying just about everything he could think of, one of Joseph's old prison buddies spoke out about the dreamer. And at just the right time. Everything was brought together. Joseph was able to interpret the dreams Pharaoh was having. This move positioned their nation to be set up for the hard times that were to come. Pharaoh also placed Joseph into a prominent position as the second in command over their country. Some years later, and just like he dreamed, his brothers came to the capital needing food and bowed to Joseph, though not realizing it was him. 
Joseph would go on to reveal himself, showing grace and mercy to his brothers. This is a pretty familiar story in the Bible, but let's unpack it together as it lays out a great foundation on how we can achieve our dreams. The theme of your heart will set the direction of your future. From the very first moment that Joseph had a dream about carrying the weight of influence, he was diligent with that marker as the theme of his heart. The central position of his acknowledgement allowed him to continuously work towards influential positions, regardless of whether it was as a slave, prisoner, or national hero. He shared his dreams with others unashamedly, but did not boast in them. By walking in a confidence given by what he felt God revealed to him, he was able to withstand any criticism or false accusations that came along. For something to be the theme of your heart, it doesn't happen overnight. You have to allow the promises of God to take root inside of you. As you meditate on God's word, passion for the things of the Lord will grow deeper inside of you. Pieces of the chaos that exist in the world will begin to drift away and your heart will be set solely on God's dream for your life. Since that moment when I was 10 years old and the school counselor unknowingly prophesied over me, my heart's theme was to be a messenger of the gospel. Quite literally, I would begin to have dreams at night of me standing on stages in churches, arenas, and stadiums, declaring the truth of Jesus. Our dreams at night are one of the ways God breathes into us our destiny. By the time I got off to college, some of life's challenges had squeezed their way into my heart. I lost focus of God's call on my life. I began preaching when I was a freshman in high school. God had used me all over my region to preach in dozens of churches, but I took a break when I departed from Missouri State University. I was considering what my career should be. I was majoring in public relations with a minor in ethical leadership. My professor, Mrs. Kyle, brought in several guest speakers to help us understand different possible career paths. One was a Missouri State alumnus who went to law school and became a government lobbyist. I was inspired and started to think about entering politics again. I looked into law schools and started mapping out a plan to become the youngest governor in Missouri history. Times of worship and prayer were important to me. In my one-bedroom apartment in Springfield, Missouri, where I went to college, I would routinely turn on a YouTube video of the latest worship songs. One song in particular really spoke out to me. It was called, Your Love Never Fails, sung by Chris Kilala of Jesus Culture. I played it on repeat almost every day. With the lyrics, the wind is strong and the water's deep, but I'm not alone in these open seas, because your love never fails. Blaring through my iMac, I rested in God's presence while spreading out on a lumpy red bean bag in my living room. This time something happened I'd never experienced before. It felt like Jesus himself had walked into the room. The Holy Spirit rushed over me and I felt a tremendous yet gentle weight of supernatural love. My heart longed to feel love like this. It was a surge of supernatural proportions, much like what Lydia had experienced in Acts 16. I wanted the feeling to last forever, but I knew it wouldn't. However, it did reawaken me to the calling over my life. That moment with that song, the Holy Spirit permanently changed my trajectory. 
A few days later, a summer internship in my youth ministry was offered to me. I excitedly said yes and never looked back. My political aspirations subsided because I encountered the desires of my heart that were woven into the fabric of my DNA by the Creator. The small things you do when no one is watching lead to the big things when all eyes are on you. I sometimes think about what was going through Joseph's mind as he was sitting in the hole his brothers dug for him. I bet he prayed and he asked for strength to persevere that he may achieve what God called him to. And again, what was going through his mind as he was stripped naked, beaten, sold into slavery? For him to gain influence and positional authority, he had to know that what he did in the small moments create the future that God had planned for him. So he served, and he refused to cross any boundaries that would negatively impact his integrity. And then prison. That had to be the hardest place to be sold out to God's promises. Most people in this prison were likely legitimate criminals. They probably did not suddenly become saints once they were locked up. It's really hard to remain faithful when those around you lack character. But Joseph did it, and God honored him for it. His faithfulness in the small moments built up a trust reservoir with God. God knew that when Joseph ascended to a place of influence, he would handle it exactly the way that he was meant to. These moments of refinement built his character to lead with grace. His small moments of trusting God in the whole, in slavery, and in prison led to the fulfillment of his life dream. We are what we repeatedly do because he learned to trust God when it seemed like his dream was over and no one was watching. One day when he was in front of everyone on the main stage trusted by God with an entire nation's livelihood. What things are you doing in your life to remain faithful to the dream that God has placed in your heart? How are you building up a trust reservoir with God? Jesus says those that can be trusted with the small things will be trusted with more. Be faithful when no one is watching and allow the habits of God's lordship over your life to blossom and to impact onto those you influence. Choose what you want most over what you want now. Joseph was a young guy who most likely desired a relationship with a woman. And since Potiphar was a prominent leader of the time, his wife had to be attractive and appealing. The thought surely crossed Joseph's mind, even if only for a fraction of a second, that he desired Potiphar's wife. More than Potiphar's wife, though, he wanted the dream that God placed on his life to be realized. When he sat in the pinnacle of his influence, in the scene he had dreamed about, his brothers came and bowed before him in need of food. A lesser man would have banished the brothers from his presence. Joseph had the authority and the right to do the same, but he chose what he wanted most, restoration with his family. He chose to extend grace and lead with what God led him to do. He and his family were brought back into a right relationship with each other. Our culture today is a microwave society where now is easy. Now is the extra piece of cake or the new pair of shoes. It's saying what's on your mind justifying ourselves as we compromise our values. We feel now instantly. Most is, is hard. Most is letting your mouth water. 
rocking those shoes until the soles fall out. It's being quick to listen and slow to speak. Loving others, even if they don't deserve it, most takes patience. Haven't you heard it said, lost the battle but won the war? In order to stay on course for the dream that God's placed in your life, there will be many now most battles. Discipline yourself to want most. Big dreams take big sacrifices. Life plan. After a particularly challenging time in my life, God connected me to some really great mentors. I had surrounded myself with leaders that did not value the gifts that God had placed in my life. Instead, they took advantage of my skills for their personal agendas. It took me some time to realize what had happened. And when I did, I felt confused and distracted. Despite what I had been through, I knew God was still calling me to share the gospel, write books, and teach online courses, speak at conferences, and lead churches. It was a time when the dream was still in my heart, but the difficulty of the whole of slavery or prison began to sink in. One of my mentors, Bart is certified in something called Life Plan. It's a Christ-centered process to help bring focus and clarity to various domains in your life. He offered to help create a life plan for me. I accepted, and I spent a few days with him at his house in Las Vegas. During this process, Bart asked me one question that changed my perspective forever. At your funeral, what do you want them to remember you for? What is your contribution going to be? This was a question that was less about legacy and much more about fulfilling what I believe God has me to do. I answered him by saying, in the end, I want my contribution to be a movement that spreads the aroma of Christ because I have an intimate relationship with God and taught people to want to be better. Bart helped me come up with a plan to accomplish this by leaning into the next five years and dreaming what might be possible. I dreamed of writing this book years before I typed a word. It's part of the contribution I feel God's wanting me to make for the kingdom. I also knew God would position me to help churches and leaders dream big dreams for their ministries and their lives. The dream I believe that God has for my life has become my theme. And this conversation was a great reminder. It's vital to reframe your perspective so you can continue to operate toward the dream or the position of influence that God has you. In everyone's life, there will be moments when we hold influence to those around us. It could be at work, with our family, with our peers. When those moments come, how do you want to be able to respond? Maybe the best question you can ask yourself is at your funeral, What do you want them to remember you for? What is your contribution going to be?